0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies, I am in Acts 7, I am going to cover verses 51 through 60, the last 10 verses in Acts chapter 7. We are in the middle of Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, as he is unjustly accused of blaspheming God, speaking against Moses, speaking against the temple. Our context is this, in our last three audios in the first 50 verses of Acts 7, we see Stephen laying out his defense. He's saying, I was not speaking against Moses. He probably said, I was just speaking against the traditions of the elders, although he didn't explicitly say so. But as far as the accusation that he was trying to tear the temple down, he started saying, no, God doesn't live in one temple. He lives all over the world, and that's all I was saying. I wasn't saying I was going to tear down this particular heap of stones that you Jews are so worried about. So he's given sort of a fact-based defense But now, in verse 51, he throws caution to the winds, and he starts naming names and kicking rear. He calls his accusers murderers and resistors of the Holy Spirit. So he turns the accusation around. They accused him of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, speaking against God. And he turns around and says, No, you murdered the Son of God. Now, at this point, we can see that Stephen is not really interested in getting sprung. You don't, If you're defending yourself in court, you don't call your judges murderers. You just don't do that. So he was more interested in speaking the truth now as a witness to the truth of Jesus to the people around than he was in saving his life. He knew he was doomed physically. So we start in verse 51. Stephen tees off, quote, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did, so do you. Now, Stephen had already given an, an example of their ancestors resisting God, resisting the Holy Spirit, talking about Moses. Remember when Moses killed the Egyptian and the next day, one of the Hebrews that Moses broke up a fight, that that was involved in a fight that Moses broke up, that Hebrew slave looked at Jesus and said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over me? Resisting Moses, resisting their deliverer, their, their redeemer, who was going to carry them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. And this dumb uh, troublemaker accused Moses and rejected Moses. And Stephen had appealed to that. And so once again, well, he's referring to all the ancestors resisting the Holy Spirit. He's already mentioned Moses in the next verse. He's going to talk about all the prophets that killed, just like Jesus said earlier told the Jews that you were murderers of the prophets. So that's kind of his his aim here, he's saying, look, you guys are evil. You're murderers. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. He's going to call them murderers in the next verse. Now, eight times earlier preceding this verse, in verses 11, 12, 15, 19, 38, 39, 44, and 45, Stephen had referred to the Jewish leaders as, to, to his ancestors as our ancestors, thus identifying himself with his Jewish persecutors. But now notice in verse 51, he says, your ancestors resisted the Holy Spirit. Stephen does not feel like he wants to identify them with him anymore, especially as he's getting ready to call them murderers. He wants to say, no, it's it's on your head, buddy, not mine. Now, I will say this, at the very end, he's going to ask that Jesus forgive the Sanhedrin for murdering him. So this is, Stephen is not out for personal revenge here. He's just merely stating the facts. They are murderers a judicial fact. He's in a a supposedly judicial proceeding, and so he's pointing out the facts. He's not trying to get personal vengeance on these people. He calls them uncircumcised. Of course, every good Jew is circumcised because of the covenant with Abraham, and they were circumcised physically, but they weren't circumcised in their hearts. They weren't really the people of God, just because they had that physical sign in their flesh. They were circum. They had they were members of Israel in their flesh, but in the, they weren't members of kingdom of the kingdom of God because of their hearts, their hearts being uncircumcised, a good metaphor there. And you're not a member of the covenant, guys. You're murdering the founder of the new covenant. You wonder how the Sanhedrin felt about that charge, you uncircumcised people. There's nothing worse than being uncircumcised if you're a Jew because that means you're not keeping the covenant. We we'll go to verse 52. Stephen continues his jeremiad. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. There he explicitly calls them murderers. Let's start with that. Stephen is following up on Peter's three accusations of murder against the Jewish leaders. In Acts 223, we read this. This is Peter Pentecostal sermon. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter calls him a murderer in chapter 2. Acts 3 15. You kill the author of life. This is when he's preaching after the at the beautiful gate excuse me after healing the leper at the beautiful gate he was preaching there in the temple complex and he tells the people there the men he says he says men of Israel you kill the author of life. Not only the leaders but now he's accusing the the crowd that backed the leaders. Acts 4.10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel about the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And that was before the Sanhedrin. Acts 2.3 and 4, Peter's call them murderers. You crucified him. You killed him. Stephen's just carrying on the tradition. He, this, he's saying, you murdered him. You crucified him. Now here, Stephen calls Jesus the righteous one, which is interesting. We usually don't think of that title of the Messiah, the righteous one. The title is applied to Jesus in three other places in the New Testament. Here's an exclu- exclusive list. Acts 3:14, "but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you," that was Peter. "Holy and righteous one." Acts 22:14, then he said, "the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one," that was Peter's before the Jewish mob after his third journey back in Jerusalem. Paul, not Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, then he, Paul, said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the sound of his voice. In James, verse five, chapter 5, verse 6, You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man, he does not resist you. Now, to be frank with you, I've never thought of that phrase there, the righteous man is referring to Jesus in particular. I thought it was just referring to righteous men in general that some of these people murdered, but he could be. Some commentator pointed that out to me, I don't have it in my notes, but... Perhaps, but at any rate, at least in two other places, Jesus is called the righteous one, Of course, righteous means holy, in fact, in acts three fourteen he's called the holy and righteous one, kind of the two adjectives are kind of uh, in opposition to one another, holy holy one and righteous one, without sin, pure, keeping the law perfectly, and so forth. Now, of course, that presents a blazing contrast to these unrighteous Sadducees. And Sanhedrin members and Pharisees who are betraying Jesus and murdering him. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Who said? Oh, before I go on to that, let me point out that also in the Old Testament, I gave you a couple of New Testament verses which refer to Jesus as the righteous one. Let's look in, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53:11." He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Of course, that's referring to Jesus. Jeremiah 23, 6, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is what he will be named, Yahweh, our righteousness. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown saying this is referring to Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, Stephen's question, rhetorical question, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's pointing out that you're continuing in your family tradition of resisting the Holy Spirit. Just like the ancestors of your ancestors resisted Moses, now your ancestors have also resisted all of the prophets. This sounds exactly like what Jesus told them in Matthew 23, 31. You, therefore, testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. I'm sure Stephen learned from Jesus. He's quoting stuff he's learned. And as I said before, it is quite clear that Stephen has given up on all hopes of acquittal now because he called his judges murderers. So he continues. He's got nothing to lose now. He's abandoned himself to Jesus, his eternal life with Jesus. He counted his life on this earth as nothing. Acts 7.53, Stephen continues, You, you Sanhedrin Jewish leaders, you received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. Well, I mean, if you know angels give you the law, that's pretty awesome. But you didn't bother to keep the law. You hypocrites, is what he's suggesting. Here's four scriptures, or let's let's say three scriptures, in addition to Acts 7.53 that talks about the law given at the direction of angels at Mount Sinai. Galatians 3.19, Paul says this, Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. The mediator being Moses, the law was put into effect through angels. So angels had something to do with the, the giving of the law at Sinai. Hebrews 2.2, 2, for if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and di- disobedience received a just punishment. If the message spoken through angels was legally binding, binding. Hebrews 2.2. Deuteronomy 33.2, he said, The Lord came down from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. Seir is just a mountain range right north of Sinai. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Again, that's another mountain nearby. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones, holy ones being angels, with flaming fire at his right hand. So this is an old, old, old idea in Jewish tradition based on the scriptures adopted by the Christian scripture writers that the law was ministered through angels at Mount Sinai. Now, Why God chose to do it that way, I don't know. I can't even speculate on that. But it does add to the august nature of the law, and that's Stephen's point. It's really an awesome thing that God had all those angels delivering the law to you, and you didn't keep it. Other translations here, you receive the law under the the direction of angels. The KGV has under the disposition of angels. The Jameson Foster Brown translates it as under the appointment of angels or as under the ordination of angels. But whatever it means... The angels were there when God gave the law to Moses. Acts 7.54 When they, the Sanhedrin, heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth in him. Well, that's not surprising. They, they, they really lost it. Now, it reminds me of when a Democrat listens to President Trump call them human scum. <laughs> they get real upset. Sort of logically that they would get upset. KGV says they were cut to the heart. Adam Clark translates it as they were sawn through. They were completely unable to answer Stephen with cold hard facts because this was a kangaroo court, a lynch mob. And emotions were prevailing here, not judicial equanimity. Acts 7 verses 55 through 56. But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, at this particular moment, Stephen is described as being filled by the Holy Spirit. Most everybody, about 99.9% of people in the Christian world, say that he was filled by the Holy Spirit at that point, and filled being under the control of the Holy Spirit. And he needed to be because he's about to get killed. I mentioned another option, though. He could have been, but Stephen having been filled by the Holy Spirit, in other words, having been given the power to witness when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit earlier, whether at Pentecost, it doesn't say he was one of the ones at Pentecost. He could have been. I really don't think so. I'm tempted to say so because I, I really get irritated with people who just blow off the subsequence noted in the five, uh, four of the five Pentecostal instances in the book of Acts, which we'll get to starting next chapter. So I'm tempted to say, well, that that's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not just a an instance here where you're especially filled at the moment. Let me give you John Gill's view on that. He said, quote, being under the influences of the Spirit of God and filled with his divine comfort and strong in the faith of Jesus Christ and having a boldness, a holy boldness, courage, and intrepidity of mind. Now, Stephen says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, of course, that's Stephen. The rest of the Sanhedrin, I'm sure, didn't see that. He calls Jesus the Son of Man. It's a messianic title. And whenever he used it, Of himself, Jesus was trying to emphasize his relationship to messianic prediction, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Give you just a couple of examples: Mark two ten. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic to take up your pallet and walk. And so you see here, the Son of Man is connected with authority to forgive sins. And in Matthew twenty five thirty one, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. That is talking about the coming of the Son of Man, and it's a glorious thing, and so therefore Jesus uses a messianic title, Son of Man. Where did Jesus get that messianic title? Son of man that jesus that Stephen uses also Daniel seven thirteen through fourteen. I continued watching in the night visions, Daniel says, and I saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. I was just teaching this the other day to some Chinese students over the internet. And one of them asked me, why is the Son of Man not capitalized in Daniel 7, but it's capitalized in the New Testament? I thought, well, you know, that's a a darn good question. I don't know why the Holman Christian Study Bible does that, and other ones do also. Why is the Son of Man, if it's a Messianic title, why is it not capitalized in Daniel 7? Of course, there's no capitals in the original language. It's a translator's choice, but... And I think I found one version that did capitalize it in the Old Testament. But it was a title, Son of Man. It became a title anyway, even if it wasn't at the time of Daniel 7. I continued watching the night visions, and I saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. So you see, the Son of Man is about to receive a kingdom. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. Not only was he given a kingdom, but it was a worldwide kingdom, every people, nation, and language. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Not only was it wide in scope, global, it's also eternal in time. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So that's a perfect title. Is it not for a messiah who's in charge of a kingdom that's worldwide and will never go away? And Stephen uses that title And it's debated whether the Jews actually knew whether that title was Messianic or not. It's debated whether they used it as a Messianic title. But at any rate, Stephen did. Why was Jesus was standing, people have pointed out that that proves that Jesus was a man. He has a human body even while he's in heaven, which I think is standard Orthodox theology. Standing at the right hand of God, that is the hand of power and authority. So the Son of Man has all power, all divine power and authority. Here's a verse I just ran across here in Revelation 1.13. Among the lap stands was one like the Son of Man. Here's John the Apostle referring to Jesus as the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. Now, when Stephen uses the phrase Son of Man, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is actually using the same words that Jesus had used before that very same Sanhedrin, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. Matthew 26.64. This is when they asked him, Are you the Son of Son of God, you have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the cloud, on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting Daniel seven thirteen and 14 there, that messianic passage, and of course he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 87, and we're just going to come back and wipe them out. Now we should examine a question. Why did Jesus choose to reveal himself to Stephen at this time? Why did he have this great vision? You know, visions are rare. You don't, even in the New Testament, they didn't have them often. Well, John Gelsa said it was to give Stephen courage and assistance. And this is a standard thing. When you get the most in trouble, that's when Jesus will reach down because he cares for you and he will show more power and more of himself to you when you're in a jam. That's just the way he is. And so Stephen was in a jam and he needed courage and assistance. John Gill also says that God wanted to show his indignation at his enemies. And so he gave that vision to Stephen when Stephen could report it to sh- so that people reading it later would know that the Sanhedrin was awful guilty at what they had done. Another option is that that God wanted to show what eager interest he had in the proceedings. He's, he's up there watching what's going on. But I think the main reason he wanted it, it was he wanted to encourage Stephen. All right, so this is a famous scene here, and I've got to read this quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. For Artarical excellence, I don't think I've seen anything to quite match it, so let me read this to you. Quote, you who could transfer to canvas such scenes as these, in which the rage of hell grins horribly from men, as they sit condemned by a frail prisoner of their own, and see heaven beaming from his countenance and opening full upon his view. I envy you, for I find no words to paint. What in the majesty of the divine text is here so simply told. We go to Acts 7, verse 57 and 58. Then they, that's the members of the Sanhedrin, they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. Yeah, they're really conducting a calm judicial procedure, aren't they? Screaming and hollering, covering their ears so they can't hear any more of this alleged blasphemy. Then they threw him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, some people say that this indicates that Saul was in charge of the execution. Of course, Saul later became Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So it's kind of ironic. He's he's there watching one of the first martyr, the first martyr of the Christian church, get killed. He was there at the stoning. I don't know why, just because he was keeping their robes. He might have just been there, and they needed somebody to keep their robes so they could unwind. Kind of like the baseball pitcher takes off his warm-up jacket so he can th- throw better. Now Saul is mentioned here. This, we'll do some literary stuff here. Saul is mentioned here so that we can know. And there's really no reason to mention Saul here, except that it introduces the man who's later going to take up most of the second section of the book. The NIV Study Bible points that out. Notice they threw him out of the city. Was, that's because executions were legally be required to be carried outside of every city. We can see that in Leviticus 24:23. After Moses spoke to the Israelites, they brought the one who had cursed to the outside of the camp and stoned him. The outside of the camp. So the Israelites did as the Lord had commanded Moses. That was a standing procedure. You didn't capitally execute everybody in the city. It was considered kind of unholy, I guess. That's kind of, it was commanded by the law, so of course it wasn't unholy in that sense. But death, anything had to do with death, you, they were supposed to. Like, you couldn't go, if you went to a funeral and touched the coffin where well, you were considered unclean. Well, naturally, an execution associated with death, so you would be levitically unclean. It doesn't mean there was something wrong with capital punishment. So, I note here that it's quite ironic that a kangaroo court would scruple at legality. I mean, they're obviously killing him. They don't even have the right to kill him. We'll talk about this in a minute. The, the Romans didn't give him the right. They never judicially took a vote and says, is Stephen innocent or not? They just started screaming, put their hands over the ears and said, stone him, threw him out. I mean, what kind of a procedure is this? The Jews besoiled themselves judicially, not not only in the execution of Stephen, but also in the execution of Jesus. They railroaded two holy and innocent men. They judicially murdered them. We need to remember that. Now, let's talk about the stoning procedure. I've got two good descriptions of it. One is from John Gill. Quote, The wise men say, A man was stoned naked, but not a woman. And, to be honest with you, I don't think that that was the normal procedure. I think they just threw Stephen out and started throwing rocks without worrying about the, the normal legal procedure. But this is it. The man, a man was stoned naked, but not a woman. And there was a place four cubits from the house of stoning where they plucked off his clothes, only they covered his naked as before. The place of stoning was two men's heights, And there he went up with his hands bound, and one of the witnesses thrust him on his loins, pushed him over, in other words, that he might fall upon the earth. And if he died not at that push, the witnesses lifted up a stone, which lay there, the weight of two men, and one cast it with all his strength upon him. And he died not, and if he died not, he was stoned by all Israel. Well, that's one rabbi. Gill is quoting one rabbi as how it was done. I'm sure it wasn't done the same way all the time, because here's Adam Clark. Here's how he said it was done. A cliff was found that was twice a man's height. One witness throws the criminal off the cliff so the criminal lands on his back. If he dies, end of execution. If he doesn't die, the witnesses roll the the victim, the murderer, over on his breast. Excuse me, that's not what I meant to say. If he dies, that's the end of the execution. But on the other hand, if he he rolls over on his stomach, on his breast, after having been pushed off the cliff the witness will roll him over again on his back. And if, after this, if he dies, of course, the execution is over. If he still isn't dead, the other witness lays a stone on his heart, and I suppose that's keeping him from being able to breathe. If he dies, the execution is over. Well, if all that doesn't kill him, then all the other Israelites on the top of the cliff, they start dropping stones on him, and that'll do him in. So however it was done, as we're going to see here, Stephen was kneeling while the stones were coming, so I don't think that the normal legal procedure rabbinic procedure of carrying out executions was carried out in the case of Stephen. Now this young man, Saul, he was probably about 30 years old. Luke calls him young here. Why do we say about 30 years old? This is John Gill. About 30 years later when Paul wrote Philemon, which was in the 60s, Paul says this, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, elderly man would probably put him around 60 or so, And Paul, that was about 30 years after the stoning here, so that puts him around 30. And he probably wasn't younger than 30 because the Sanhedrin is not going to give a young man under 30 the right to go around persecuting people and arresting people with judicial letters. So he's about 30 years old, watching. And of course, as Paul says later, I don't have the verse, but he says later, he fully approved of it. The Sanhedrin is screaming as they throw Stephen out to get stoned, they had heard that Jesus was, Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Well, that, if that was true, that means that the Sanhedrin had murdered an innocent man, and that's probably what really set them off. And they knew that if they had murdered an innocent man, that God was going to judge them for it. And you know they must have known it. They must have suppressed the truth and un- unrighteousness in their heart. They must have known. They had to have known it and deep down inside that Jesus was innocent, and their evil, filthy sin caused them to murder an innocent man, the Son of God. By the way, the stoning did have legal sanction behind it, Deuteronomy 17:7. 7, the witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And that is, if a false witness would probably have some compunction about throwing a stone on somebody to kill that he knew was innocent. So the law made it say, hey, you're going to testify against somebody and say he's innocent? Well, you're going to pull the switch, or the equivalent, which is you're going to throw the rock to kill him. And after that, Deuteronomy continues, the hands of all the people... So that means that all the people are identified with the execution. We've got to get all this sin out outside of the community. You must purge the evil from you. And again, let me repeat, they threw him outside the city and started stoning him stoning him without any formal sentences, Adam Clark points out. Apparently, I think it's very apparent, they, they didn't take the time to formally condemn him. Acts 7, verse 59, they were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knows he's dying and he's thinking of the eternal abode that comes next it says receive my spirit this shows that that man is at least dichotomous if not trichotomous he is flesh he is physical he's material and there's an immaterial part of man and steven knew that his physical part of man was doomed at that point but he nonetheless had hope because he said hey my spirit is going to live again with jesus this proves as john gill says there's no such thing as soul sleep He didn't say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to take a little nap here until the final resurrection, then raise me up at the last day. No, he said, receive my spirit. He's looking at him. Remember, he's seeing a vision, seeing Jesus standing there. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where's the soul sleep for all you soul sleepers out there? And notice he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Only God can receive the spirit of a dying man. So that shows that Jesus was not merely a man, but he was also God. A little bit of theology here. One more little point of theology, Stephen pray directly to Jesus. He said, Lord Jesus, this proves that it's perfectly okay to pray directly to Jesus. It's not proper that we sh- to say that we should only pray to God the Father. Now I know that that's sort of a pattern praying to God the Father in Jesus name There's nothing wrong with doing that, but every now and then you see pray- people praying to Lord Jesus and here's an example of it, praying to Jesus directly and here's an example of it. this came up in a theology night meeting I have at my church. And people were just saying, oh, there was one brother in particular that kept saying, no, we got to pray to God directly. Well, if I didn't have this verse at the tip of my tongue, I wish I had. Stephen prayed directly to Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, let's look at a legal problem here. The Sanhedrin did not have the right to stone anybody. Capital crimes were, were carried out. Capital punishment was carried out only by the Roman authorities, according to Roman law. And here they are stoning somebody they didn't stone jesus they didn't crucify jesus they got the romans to do that but by golly they'd stone jesus without the help stone stephen without the help of the romans so what's the difference well here's the answer this is this by the way i got from gotquestions.org which is a fantastic website for answering little problems like this and here's the answer first of all the jews needed the romans to legally kill jesus What would have happened to the Jews if they had not enlisted Rome's help in killing Jesus? Jesus' immense popularity would lead to Roman retribution. Why? Because there would inevitably be riots because the great Messiah was killed. And who's going to get blamed for those riots? The uh, The Jews would get blamed by the Romans, and they would be in a heap big world of trouble. So the Jews needed to prove their loyalty to Rome. They weren't responsible for riots, so they needed the Romans to kill Jesus, not them. Now, here are some good things that would happen for the Jews if, if they, in fact, did enlist the Romans' help to kill Jesus. First of all, as I mentioned, Rome could not object to any riots following Jesus' death. And also, Jesus' supporters would be discouraged from attempting revenge against the Jews. The Jews would say, hey, we didn't do it. The, Jews, the Romans did it. Go after them, and they'll kill you. So, there was good reason why the, the Jews were just panting for the Romans to kill Jesus instead of them jesus was well well known but in stephen's case is different than jesus stephen was unknown his stoning is not going to attract rome's attention so they could get away with stoning him and if rome did complain about it the sanhedrin could say well it really wasn't us that condemned him it was the mob violence everybody got upset by what was stephen said at the hearing and they went out and stoned him we didn't have anything to do with it there's another factor which made it easier for the sanhedrin to stone stephen and not worry about the romans And that was, Pilate was politically weak. He couldn't have stopped the Sanhedrin from stoning Stephen, even if he wanted to, the Roman governor. Before Jesus' execution, Pilate had been blamed for excessive violence against Jewish unrest. And then he had to deal with Jesus' execution, and things nearly got out of hand there. There was almost riots there, and he, he knew that he was in a heap big bad situation when Jesus was getting executed. And so if Pilate... And Pilate, by the way, was still governor here. He lost his governorship in 36 AD, which is a few years after Stephen Stoning. If Pilate had seen that Stony, do you think he's going to get involved in that? Say, hey, you guys, we Romans are supposed to execute, uh, execute c- criminals. Not you. He's not going to get in the Jews' way. Not after all the trouble he's had with them for years. And eventually he's going to get him booted out of his office. And we might add another point. The crowd was so infuriated here, as is obvious from the text. The Sanhedrin might not have been thinking logically. They might not have even been thinking about the fact that, hey, we don't have the right to stone this guy. Remember? The Romans have the right to do that, but they might have been so angry they didn't care. They just went out and stoned him anyway. But what, for whatever reason, this was an illegal act. It was not only illegal. According to Jewish law, because obviously Stephen wasn't committing blasphemy and speaking against God, it was also illegal according to Roman law. Everything about it was illegal. But it's perfectly understandable why the Romans didn't get involved and why the Jews didn't want the Romans to get involved. They didn't take time to even ask the Romans to get involved as they did with Jesus. Now let's finish up Acts chapter 7 with verse 60. Then he, Stephen, knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. Of course, fell asleep is a euphemism for dying. He knelt down. That's not the normal position for a person being stoned, as I mentioned earlier, which makes me think that people didn't wait to do that. They just pushed him outside and started throwing rocks at him. And he knelt down. Now, some people say that he knelt down to show he was submissive before God as he was seeing that vision. As he said seen that vision earlier, I don't think so. I think he was knelt down because the stones were falling down on his head. He cried out with a loud voice, Do not charge them with this sin. Now, that's an interesting thing because, obviously, they were guilty. The Sanhedrin was guilty. This reminds me of what Jesus said. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. This is in Luke 23, verse 34. And I've often wondered the same thing about Jesus. What do you mean, forgive him? How can you forgive somebody for judicially executing the Son of God, or in this case, judicially executing Stephen, uh, the first Christian martyr? How can they not be guilty? How can that sin not be charged with him? Uh, now, this is my speculation. I didn't find any comment. You know, have you ever noticed how commentators give you all kinds of stuff that you hadn't thought about? But then you think about something that they hadn't thought about. And I'm talking about big-shot commentators. They just don't mention things. So I'm going to have to speculate here, I think, that Stephen is trying to show that he is not personally holding these people guilty for what they did to him. This is not a matter of personal vengeance or or a vendetta against them. It was rather judicially they had killed Stephen, and and Stephen is not trying to say judicially they shouldn't have done this. What he's saying is, Lord, personally, I do not hold this against them. I don't think he means let them off the hook in the eyes of divine justice because obviously they can't they're not going to be let off the hook without repentance but what he's saying is i personally forgive them and you know you know there was a case just a couple weeks ago in texas this ex-cop a woman she was sexting a married police officer on the way home and she was paying attention to her immoral sex text and she got confused as to where she was she got on the wrong floor, and she went to what she thought was her apartment, but it was the wrong apartment. It was on a different floor, and she shot the guy. She thought it was an intruder in her apartment. She pulled out her police revolver and shot the guy. She got condemned for 10 years, manslaughter of some sort. And the deceased victim's brother, and what made it worse is the, the woman cop was white, and, the, and the, the deceased was black. But the deceased victim's brother was a Christian. And he got up at the time when the victim's family can get up and talk about what you've done to us, you know. He got up and says, I don't even want to see you in jail. He said, I want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, man, brought a tear to my eyes. And the judge later, who's also a black woman, she came back later and gave a Bible to that cop. Now, that woman, who's now in jail for 10 years, she has seen forgiveness. But she's still in jail. That judge, because she was a Christian judge, she didn't say, well, you know, I forgive you, and the victim's brother forgives you, so we're going to let you walk. No, that cop went to, that ex-cop went to jail and she paid her punishment, but she was shown personal forgiveness. I and mean, there's a big difference. You know, Jesus said, I'm sure Peter, Stephen was carrying out what he learned from what Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5:44. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think that's just what Stephen was doing. St- Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount never meant spring all the criminals from jail. He never meant that. He never meant don't carry out legal procedures for justice. Otherwise, why would his apostle, who was inspired by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, say in Romans 13.1, submit to the authorities who have the power of the sword, S-W-O-R-D. That's capital punishment. So I don't believe there's a contradiction there. Ladies and gentlemen, with that dramatic moment, we now have finished Act Seven. And we are prepared for Acts 8, which I'll take up in the next audio. We will see Paul going crazy, persecuting the church. A great persecution broke out after this horrible execution of Stephen. But God took it and worked it to the good of the church, because now the church is now spreading out of Jerusalem its Jewish origins and starts spreading to Samaria. That's Acts chapter 8, Samaria. Philip goes up to Samaria. They get saved. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. And that begins the procedure of the church spreading to all the world, which is what the book of Acts is about. So we'll take that up next audio. Hope you stay tuned for that. I hope you enjoyed this one.